as a preacher, Christmas can be a challenging time of year. And don't get me wrong, Christmas is a wonderful time of celebration and anticipating the coming of Jesus. But after 16 years preaching through the Christmas story, sometimes as a preacher you can think, well, how, how can I keep this fresh? Because after so many years, you've sort of preached about Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and the angels and the shepherds and everything. And all except one passage I've preached and covered more than once. But there's been one passage that I've been avoiding. It's awkward, it's difficult, and it's the passage that we're going to look in today. So it's taken me 16 years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the anticipation that we have at this time of year of Jesus' coming. And not just that first time, but also that Jesus comes afresh in our hearts as we worship and look to him. We pray as we open your word in this difficult passage that you will help us to be more like Jesus and to understand your will through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this awkward passage that I've been talking about is found in Matthew chapter 2 that was just read. Now it's a passage that describes how King Herod murdered all of the toddlers, all of the boys, two years and younger, that were living in Bethlehem and surrounds. It's a terrible, terrible incident that is often called the slaughter of the innocents. So you can see why preachers don't line up every Christmas to preach the story, don't you? In fact, I don't think I've ever sat in a church and heard someone preach this from the pulpit, and I'm guessing that you may not have either. And I suppose the difference this year from other years is the conflict in Gaza, and it's really drawn my attention to this passage. No matter who you think is right or wrong, in this conflict, and something that we see in our TV screens nightly, this conflict involves the suffering of many innocents. And the main point I want to make today is this. Christmas does not mean the immediate end of darkness. Christmas means that light has broken into the darkness. You see, the darkness is still about us, the difference is that on that first Christmas day when light came, hope sprang up, transformed lives, the advancing of the kingdom of God. And 2,000 years later, at this Christmas, when there are parts of the world that are in darkness, including Gaza, Ukraine, Sudan, and other places, the light of Jesus still breaks through. Often when we sing the Christmas carols and look at the Christmas cards, we are carried away by that lovely sentiment, and that's not a bad thing. But let us remember that Jesus came into a very dark world and there were dark things happening around him. Indeed, the good news of the gospel is this. We see this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The prophecy that was fulfilled when Jesus came, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And that means Bethlehem and Gaza and the rest of the world. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a great light has dawned. And this is good news. So even though we're looking at a grim topic, grim incident, there is good news. 
And so how are we going to approach this passage? Well, we're going to approach this passage by looking at one factor, one idea, one big picture idea, and that is the coming of Jesus always evokes hostility. The coming of Jesus always evokes hostility. Let's see how this plays out in the Christmas story, and then we'll see how it plays out in our lives. And so let's turn to Matthew, our passage, chapter 2, verse 13. And as Gail said, the context is that the wise men, the Magi, have just left Herod. And then we have this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I'll tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, knowing that Jesus' life was under threat, God sends an angel to warn Joseph and the family. And the warning is to escape immediately, without hesitation, to Egypt. Now, God's son should, by human accounts, God's son should have been born into a palace with privilege and protection. You know, if we were designing this, if we were planning for the Messiah to come, we would put him in the, in the most royal of palaces and surround him with guards. But instead we see the Son of God becoming a refugee in a foreign land. And that's what Emmanuel, God with us, means. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us in our hopes and dreams. God with us in our hard places and difficulties. And think of all the displaced people today. Think of the millions of refugees concentrated on borders and in camps and all those refugees that have been integrated into new countries, often with a sense of hostility around them. And so Christmas is good news to every refugee because Jesus, the Son of God, knows what it's like to be displaced and a foreigner in a foreign land. And with the Holy Family's flight to Egypt, there's a modern-day irony. It's interesting that today, or for the last 60, 70 years, Egypt has always closed its borders to Palestine refugees. That's why there's a wall between Egypt and Palestine, and they've only got the one gate, one border crossing that's opening. Imagine the lives saved if Egypt had opened up the borders to women and children in the same way that when Ukraine was invaded, a lot of European countries opened their borders to women and children. Isn't our world a complicated place? Complicated place. However, fortunately, in Jesus' day, there was no war, and so they could escape to Egypt. And they found refuge from violence. And what was the violence they were escaping from? Well, we see this in verse 16. Verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Isn't this awful? Now, I happen to be reading Exodus in my quiet times at the moment, where Pharaoh ordered that all infant Hebrew boys be thrown into the the Nile. That's pretty grim. And so what we have here is simply equally awful. Now, considering what we know of the population of the time, in Bethlehem and surrounds, there were probably 20 to 30 
toddlers who were two years and younger. So that's the sort of numbers we're looking at. But whether the numbers are small or great, it's pretty awful. Now, why did Herod do this? Well, the Magi, the wise men from the east, from what is modern-day Iran, they had travelled to Jerusalem and asked Herod where the recently born king of Israel was. Now, the Magi expected the child to be in Herod's palace. They were looking for a royal baby in a palace. However, there was no baby in the king's household. However, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they pointed out, they pointed to the scriptures that indicated that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem, the house of David. And so Herod sent the Magi on their way, making them promise that they would come back to Jerusalem to tell Herod where the baby was so that Herod could worship him as well. However, the Magi were also warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so the Magi, after they had offered their gifts of frankincense, uh, myrrh and gold, they went directly back home. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted, he was furious. So he ordered the death of all boys two years younger in Bethlehem. Now this was typical of what we know of Herod. Historians tell us that Herod was a brutal man. He even murdered family members to protect his throne. Historians tell us that he executed his first wife and her son. Later on, he executed his second wife and her mother. It's a bit grim way to get rid of your mother-in-laws, isn't it? But on top of that, he... He murdered three of his biological sons. He was a a wicked man. In fact, Emperor Augustus joked, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Now what's the background behind this jibe? Well, because of Herod's Jewish background, he would never kill a pig and eat it. But he seemed quite happy to kill his sons. And so... Augustus joked, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. So when we go back into Matthew 2, the killing of 20 to 30 toddlers is very much par for the course for Herod. It's just another day in the palace. I need to protect my throne. What's 20 to 30 toddlers? I order them dead. Isn't it terrible? Unacceptable. The murder of children. And though we may relegate this to the actions of a tyrant, there are implications for us as well. We can't just say, oh, well, Herod was a tyrant and he was a nasty man with a history in killing. This story has nothing much to do with us. But here's the story. When Jesus comes into the world, he always evokes hostility and pushback. We should not dismiss this just as an incident from a wicked man. For the Bible brings us a lot closer to home, a lot closer to home. The Bible tells us that the default setting, yours and mine, is that we are in enmity. We are hostile to God. That is the default for each of us. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 puts it like this. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Now, in the original Greek, the literal phrase is, the flesh is hostile to God. But the word flesh, when when it's used in this context in the Greek, is the natural state of the human heart and mind. And there's no single English word that conveys this concept of the flesh being the heart and mind of a natural person. And so your Bible translations will often add to it like this one has and says the mind governed by the flesh. But the Bible is clear on this matter. In our natural state, we hate God. It's not just that we don't believe him or it's not just that we keep him in a distance, but that we actually hate him. It's like this. Imagine you're a CEO and you hear that a board has hired a new CEO and are about to vote you out. What's your reaction? Or you're a branch manager, and you hear head office has just appointed a new branch manager, and you're on your way. Now, what's your natural response? It's to be angry, isn't it? So you want to push back. You want to retaliate. Because here's the thing. We're all like this. We don't like people telling us what to do. Now, we may concede to some people for some time. We might concede to our parents telling us what to do, maybe. We may concede to the teachers at school telling us what to do. Maybe. We may concede to the boss telling us what to do, but only in office hours. Because we all say to ourselves, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, no one's going to make me be someone I don't want to be. Yes, we are naturally the Lord of our lives, and we push back against anyone who tells us otherwise. So at Christmas, we may sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. But in each of us, there's a little bit of Herod who will do anything to protect the throne of our heart. You see, Jesus comes and he says that I am the only way to be right with God, to be truly forgiven. I am the only way that you will live up to your full potential. And this involves you stepping down from your throne and me taking your place as king in the throne of your life. Romans 10.9 puts it like this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth what? That Jesus is Lord. Many want Jesus to be our saviour. We want Jesus to save us from sin and death. We want Jesus to give us eternal life. We want Jesus to welcome us into God's family. But how many of us want him to be Lord? It's like, can we negotiate? (laughs) And the answer is no. And so, do you know, a big part of our spiritual journey from the day that we ask Christ into our life to the day that we meet him in glory A major part of our spiritual journey is learning to let Jesus be Lord of all of our lives. See, we're tempted to say something like this, God, you can be the Lord on Sundays and special occasions like Christmas, but I'm the Lord the other six days of the week. Or we might say, Lord, I'm going to give you everything except my wallet or my career or my family my hobbies. In our hearts, we are a little bit like Herod, 
We love to fight tooth and nail to be at Lord at least of some part of our lives. And in all this, God is patient and he's firm. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I mean, Jesus is firm. You should be calling me Lord, Lord, and you should be doing what I say. You see, for Jesus to be Lord in our lives, he needs to be Lord of all of our lives, not just part of our lives. And so the Holy Spirit actively works so that while we're holding on to some part of our life with white-knuckle grip, the Holy Spirit is slowly trying to pry our fingers. And sometimes he does that by sending difficulties into our life (laughs) where our pride is deflated and we say, Lord, I need you to get me out of this mess. And it's all part of the way of the Holy Spirit of teaching us to allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives. So I want to finish by talking to three different groups that could be sitting here today. Three different perspectives on having Jesus as Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who says, I'm saved and confident in my faith and this is what I want to be, then I have a caution. I realize that even if you are the saintest of saints, there is still residue anger to God in your hearts. There is this leftover resistance toward the authority of Christ. You see, Christianity is not a waltz. It's not a walk in the park. It's a fight. It's a fight because of our own hearts. We're not fighting against anyone else. We're fighting against our own hearts and that tendency for us to be Lord. And so you're never going to make any kind of Christian unless you're willing to fight to keep Jesus at the centre and fight to make him Lord. So that's the first group, Christians that are confident in their faith. Be careful. Now the second group, the second group are those who find it hard to believe in Christianity. In fact, they're not even sure they believe in God. They're what we call skeptics. Now here's the key. Skeptics are never objective. Skeptics are not in the position where they can weigh the evidence pro and con in a neutral way and make a decision whether there's a God or not. Why? Because there's a natural hostility towards God. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, Thomas Nagel was an author and philosophy professor who wrote a book a few years ago declaring why he was an atheist. And he wrote this. He said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't think the arguments for God are valued. However, here's the thing. The problem is I want atheism to be true. It's not that I just don't believe in God. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a universe where there is a God. He said, I have a cosmic authority problem. And I don't think it's rare. In fact, and this is an atheist writing, in fact, I doubt whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent on whether there is a God or not. You see, Nagel recognized that if there is a God, we lose control. There are boundaries. We can't just do what we like and live the lives we want. If Christ is who he said he is, then he's the boss and we are not. We can't live any way we want to. We are actually answerable 
And this is why even sceptics are biased. There's no neutral sceptic that's weighing up the evidence and saying yes or no, because inbred in all our hearts is this cosmic authority problem. It's a a problem with Christians, it's a problem with sceptics, and it's also a problem with the third group that I want to address, and that's the middle group. You see, some are not really sceptics, but neither are they strong Christians. They are in the middle. They kind of believe in God. They come to church sometimes, and they often may say, "I wish we here were a better. Wish I was a better Christian. Uh, I'm not really the Christian I ought to be." They say things like that. They're moderate towards Jesus. They're not sold out. It's not like they get up every day and think, "Right, I'm going to centre my life around Jesus." It's not like they say, "Well, Jesus is the reason for my living." No, no, Jesus is an add-on for them. Now, here's the thing. Sitting on the fence and being moderate will never work because the hostility to God is still under the surface. And you being on the edge may be like inoculation, a false sense of security. But what you're doing is that you are resisting a real encounter with God. Look at it this way. Those who have a genuine encounter with Jesus are never moderate to him. Do you know that? If you have a genuine encounter with Jesus, you're never moderate. You're either like the Magi and that you fall on your knees and worship or you're like Herod and you push back and resist. Read through the Gospels. When people met Jesus, how did they react? They either were in awe or they were angry. Nothing in between. What about the read through Acts? It's very similar. What about the testimonies that you hear that move your hearts? The testimonies that you hear of people coming to faith are because when persons encountered faith, they had a powerful change of their life. Nobody responds moderately when they have a genuine encounter with Jesus. And so there's some irony here that someone who is angry and pushing back against God is probably closer to God than someone who's moderate or apathetic. So let's draw this to a close. The coming of Christ is never neutral. An encounter with Jesus is never moderate. It either leads to worship like the Magi or hostility like Herod. And though it's wonderful spending a lifetime following Jesus and growing, growing in our ability to worship and enjoy him, there's always a part of us that is hostile to God. And that there's a part of us that we want to hold on to, our claim as Lord. Like I said, whether it be our wallet, our children, a relationship, a career, whatever. Yet God, in his patient kindness, he works in us by his Holy Spirit so that Jesus will become Lord of our life. I pray this Christmas, as we continue to reflect on that first coming of Jesus, that we will be open both to the area that we're holding on to and then giving it up to Jesus. So that, like 1 Peter 1, 8, this will be the claim of our hearts. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And even though we do not see him now, we believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And the only way to experience that inexpressible and glorious joy is to ask Christ to be Lord of our lives. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word with the wonderful Christmas story and, and all of that means. And we even, well, thank you for this dark, dark story. Not that we thank you that it happened, but we thank you that even in the darkness you shine a light and you point us to Christ. Help us, Lord, to give up the throne of our life to Jesus. Help us to walk with joy and follow him. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.